Hi, you found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming videos, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. In today's podcast, painter Eric Fischel is interviewed by novelist and short story writer A.M. Holmes in front of a live audience at the New York Academy of Art on October 26, 2005. So I thought I would just leap right in, which was that earlier today, as I was reviewing your entire career, <laughs> I started early in the day, actually, and uh, it took a while. But I was looking at, actually, the progression of the figures. In the earlier work, there was often a young male figure and, and maybe an older female figure. And now the figures are aging with you. They are of your generation. Well, I, I, I actually, every time I, I go to the painting, how to paint the body is a question. And um, it's been there from the start, and, and so the progression shows what I think about, uh, about the body. Yeah, er, early on, I, I, I definitely tried to uh, find something that couldn't be taken away from me. Uh, a kind of concrete uh, sense of reality of what I knew. And, and uh, in looking for that, what I knew started with memory. And so it, it began with a, a, a kind of a young life, a mm -hmm. young male life, young male psychological life. And, um, and, and very specific... Uh, uh, sense of place and, and uh, cultural milieu, and then I, I grew with it. You know, without, I, I didn't, I wasn't too strategic about it, just looking back, I see that it, yeah. it, it, you know, I caught up with myself. I mean, one of the things I always think of when I think of your painting is a very specific kind of honesty, both a psychological honesty and a physical reality, and I kept thinking when looking at the figures as they age, how do you deal with gravity and <laughs> those things? in painting when also grappling with beauty and, and all of the, the subtext of it. Yeah. But do you just... I, th I think that there's, a, yeah, the definition of beauty is a little more fluid and stuff, yeah. but in some ways the beauty exists around my figures more than in my figures. And although I have to say that there are some kind of gestures and, and a certain kind of things where the body ju just seems right, you know. So that's beautiful. Right. But mostly it's the, the light, the, the illumination that carries the beauty. I think if we could all live in the lighting in your paintings, we would probably look better, too. <laughs> I mean, I it's know. a very specific... I, I tell you, I've been, uh, you know, I paint portraits from time to time, and I, I, do, I do good with guys. But um, women, I, I, you know, it's a, it, I like them, but the, uh, the, the portraits I do, but... Uh, they're always met with a kind of disappointment. And with the guys, they're simpler. You know, if you give them a, a kind of uh, sense of character, you know, if you make them look like they're thinking and they're really happy, <laughs> it doesn't matter if they're pot-bellied or double-chinned or, you know, wrinkled or whatever. Women, they're, they're a little bit more upset about But you know, it's stuff. funny, I was, one of the portraits I was admiring a lot today that I hadn't seen before was Joan Didion and her husband. And I thought, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a, it really, in fact, in that one, she comes across as, as in many ways, the stronger image. But I thought that's an incredibly beautiful and accurate portrait of them and of her. Yeah. I talked her into taking her sunglasses off, and, uh, which you never see her with her mm -hmm. sunglasses off, so... She reluctantly, she did it, and ultimately when I painted the portrait, I put her sunglasses back on because it's so much a part of her right, persona. Right, exactly. What, was the, what is the, the psychological process for you in terms of doing, doing a portrait? Is, is that a very different experience for you? Do you think about how, how you're going to deal with who that person is? And often they're people that you know, so how you're going to... Well, well I find with portraiture that it's a... Um, discovery for me mm -hmm. that um, I mean I don't I don't actually pose people I, I let them sort of find themselves I find that if I if you let people pose themselves and in, in some not forced way but just in a relaxed way 
they tell you an enormous amount about themselves. Yeah. And and uh, and I find when I'm painting the portrait that I'm I'm discovering. There's always that thing between: Am I projecting my feelings onto this person, and or or are they projecting their yeah. on theirs on me in some way? And so I think that's the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Your other work is fiction, and that's that's a nonfiction painting. The, the portrait. A portrait. Ultimately, I don't think it is. I think really? it's total fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the same. Do way. they know that? Well, <laughs> our, our self-image is fiction. Right. Uh, yes, absolutely. To, to begin with, we we have no sense of what we really look like right. and how we project onto. I mean, I did this portrait of Lorne Michaels, who is somebody I I had met but didn't really know, and I caught him at a a moment in his life. Uh, uh, it's a kind of a middle age moment in his life when he was world weary, mm -hmm. and he didn't know that. And when he saw the picture uh, that I'd painted, he, there was a vulnerability there mm -hmm. that Absolutely. made him extremely uncomfortable because he didn't think that he had transmitted that to me, mm -hmm. an almost perfect stranger. And, uh, and then it, uh, you know, he sat with the painting for like three hours in my studio just kind of trying to get used to that this might be real. Right. But that thing between uh, fiction and nonfiction, I, I had an experience recently that I actually haven't recovered from. I, I had done these, um, this project over the last four years, uh, the Crayfeld project, mm -hmm. and I had hired these two actors. Right? Sorry, are we, are we jumping ahead? No, that's the exact question I have for you. <laughs> well, you probably didn't know this part of it, but anyway, so I hired these two uh, actors and uh, I photographed them for four days in this house, and then you know I, I went away, they went away, I did these paintings, etc. And I actually had gotten so in, into the fiction of, that I was creating of this relationship between these two that even after the, the Krefeld show, I continued to make more of these paintings. And, and I had a show last June in um, Germany, and these were German actors, so I asked the gallery if they could get in touch with the actors to invite them to the opening and stuff like that. And they called back and said the guy had died. Oh, no. Yeah, for like 40 years old, tragically right. died, you know, whatever. And, well, I only knew them for four days as, as these actors. I didn't really know them. Right. And at the same time, for four years, they were like more intimate than my closest friends, you know. And I couldn't separate the fictional mm -hmm. reality from the real reality. Mm -hmm. Did you paint him ever again after that? I, I did one last painting. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as a literary thing, I kept thinking, well, maybe I should sort of follow this, the, the, the loss. Of, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that would be really adult of me. But I, <laughs> but I couldn't face it. Exactly. I still can't face it. So. Yeah. It's interesting, because I was going to ask you about the actors and, and if in that project, if you had given them sort of direction or scenes or, or things you wanted them to do or what the evolution of uh, those images was. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd never worked with actors before, so I, uh, I have friends who are, you know, playwrights and friends who are directors. And I, so I asked all, all of them, I said, well, how do you deal with actors? Can you talk to them? Are they human? Right, exactly. or are they, you know? And uh, I got some really great advice, and, and something I could apply was give them problems. They love to solve problems. I said, well, well like, what's a problem? And one friend of mine said, well, you know, like, she wants to borrow $500 from him, but mm -hmm. she won't tell him why. Just give him that. So that's what I did. I just, I, you know, they're speaking German. I don't speak German. I w I'm taking still photographs, so right. I'm not recording their dialogue anyway, which they're actually making up. And all I'm interested in is trying to get some, what, what I think are like a kind of reality of body language, mm -hmm. you know, or some sense that these people are in the same room together, reacting to each other. So I didn't care about all that other stuff. Right. But So I would give them these problems, and they'd go crazy. They'd, you know, and the thing that blew my mind was that how quickly I could tell that it wasn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
like I didn't think I would know that because I didn't think I was caring about that. But there were there were some moments where you just think this is totally boring, you know. And so I would stop and I would give them something else. Mm-hmm. And that, the other thing that blew my mind were there were times when it was so real I have to forget to take photographs. I'd be sitting there just like. <laughs> so that that was uh, you know really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you worked with actors since? No, no, I've just. Do you think you would again? Yeah. In another language? Stars. No, I'm like stars. <laughs> stars. <laughs> Only stars. Name people. I'm thinking Jack Nicholson yeah, exactly. and oh. whoever. Exactly. <laughs> and anyone else. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, mean, I would choose a woman, but that's all right. When you think about a body of work, I mean that that project in particular comes to mind. Do you? conceptualize in terms of a whole body of work or are you thinking in terms of single images? Normally I don't think of a series of work. Uh, this, this case I was invited to put to do a show in this house and my idea was that I would photograph these people as though they lived in this house and I would then put the paintings back in the room that the actions took place, and mm-hmm. so there would be—it was sort of like reality painting TV <laughs> show. So that was it. But but other than that, I didn't have images in mind. I didn't—I didn't even have a narrative. I could never figure out whether they were a husband and wife. I couldn't figure out whether it was a mistress and mm-hmm. and he owned the house, or whether she was a housewife and he was mm-hmm. her, uh, you know, daytime uh, lover. And I kept thinking, well, I should figure this out. But, and so I'd do another painting where I tried to define their, that relationship more. I couldn't figure out whether this was taking place over a, a night, a weekend, mm-hmm. or a year. You know? and, and, yet, and so I kept thinking, I'm supposed to right. define that more. But the more specific I tried to get about it, the farther away it got. But it's so interesting, because all of that comes through in those paintings. When you look at a single image from the, that body of work, you think, Oh, it, it is a mistress and a, and a guy. And then you look at another one and you still are sort of wrestling. And I think that's part of what works about those paintings yeah. is that it's not ever fully defined who they are to each other. But you know that it's not, that it's probably not husband and wife. Mm-hmm. That much, to, at least to me, seemed to yeah, come Yeah, in one of the later paintings, it wasn't even clear whether there was a guy and a girl. It right, exactly. Really, I wondered about I, that. I mean, I chose her because of her androgyny. Right. She had a sort of a, a hairdo that had this sort of 20s mm-hmm. sort of bob thing to it that could have, she could, she was very gamine mm-hmm. anyway. So I liked that uh, aspect of it. And he just seemed like a big guy. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah, but no, I couldn't, I couldn't decide that. I, and ultimately, I, yeah, I wanted that ambiguity to it. And the, the other thing I, I was surprised at in the process of making the paintings was that and this was not conscious, it just started to evolve, was that sometimes the scene would be from her point of view, mm-hmm. sometimes from his. I mean, you, the consciousness within the picture changed in a way that I hadn't anticipated. Right. It's interesting because I was looking at the Rome paintings and these paintings that were from Germany, and I was thinking about in my own work, there definitely is a sense of wanting to work in different places, so wanting to write novels that are set, out, you know, not in New York, not in the worlds I grew up in. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the influence of travel and place. One of my earliest inspirations, like in terms of um, sustained (coughs) inspiration, came from um, um, being on the beach in southern France. Mm -hmm. And again, it it took the form of, uh, initially, of just tons of photographs that I took of people on the beach. And, and the thing that I was profoundly struck by was that kind of bizarre re- public relationship between, mm-hmm. you know, the, the nudity and, and social interaction. To my kind of quasi-puritanical eyes, I was like, what is going on here? You know, there were so many taboos that were uh, presented. I mean, there was not, not only was there this, the, the body taboo, but also there was this thing, uh, there was racial taboos, because you'd have these black Africans going around selling artifacts, art uh, things to people, 
And until I confronted it, I, I, I didn't realize how strong this sense that you know, they're, they're in an area they shouldn't be, that you know, a naked woman, a white woman, and mm -hmm. a black guy, and like, whoa. And, you know, so it brought up all of this, uh, you know, uh, all of my past and my uh, prejudices and stuff that I had to confront. And so I had that. Then there was just this thing, which was great, because people, as I said, were body language-wise, were behaving socially. Mm -hmm. They, they weren't behaving privately. So you could actually take these figures out of the beach and you could throw them into another situation and, and they'd look normal in that right. situation. They'd just be nude. So that was a, a huge uh, kind of inspiration mm -hmm. for me that sustained me for a long time. And then I went dead. And then I, I went to India. Mm -hmm. And in India, I, uh, which I hadn't planned on doing anything from India. I couldn't believe what I saw there. Mm -hmm. That was just a, I'd never had such a profound effect of otherness. Mm -hmm. And I felt so alien. I, I, I assumed that, you know, in the world you, you can read body language. You can sense when a situation is dangerous or welcoming. And when I went to India, I realized I, I have no idea what I'm experiencing here. I don't know whether it's threatening or fabulous or right. whatever. I, you know, visually, it was in, incredibly stunning. I realized, I, which I'd never had that experience before, I realized I will never understand this culture. Yeah. And, and I knew it the day we were driving back from uh, Taj Mahal, and I saw a person hitchhiking with a bear. <laughs> On a leash, living, dead. Standing next to him. Really? Yeah, on a, on a leash. <laughs> I, I just, you know, you think, I don't know one person that would ever pick up a guy and his <laughs> bear. <laughs> uh, I look at, when I look at those paintings, I do think of, of all the bodies of work, that there is something mysterious and sometimes fearful and sometimes exhilarated in, in those paintings. You know, I showed them and there was some kind of uh, critique about them based on a kind of uh, colonialist mm -hmm. mentality and, uh, you know, I'm sort of reviving a 19th century colonialism. Uh, the reason I felt that it wasn't about that was because I think when you experience those paintings, you see that there's no sense of entitlement or possession on the part of the viewer, that sure. they, they feel other, right? You know, Absolutely. excluded from this this whatever it is we're looking at, and and even though we're fascinated by it or you know mystified by it, whatever, we we don't feel we control it, we don't feel better than it, you know, et cetera. So I, I thought it was okay to you know sort of approach right. that that way, right. but. Is it just accidental that you go to India, that you go to Rome, that you go to Germany? Is it just the, the evolution of things that someone says, do you want to come here, and you just think, I'll go and look? I mean, I know for me, I definitely feel that different things happen in different cultures, and people relate differently, and I mean, they do. They, they, that's also what interests me, is sort of how do they deal with each other, and how do they negotiate and navigate, and sort of different representations of the self in some way. But I'm curious yeah. how you think about where you want to go and like, like where you go in this year. Yeah, well, I don't have any big plans this year, but a lot of it has to do with April. April has a more, uh, more fearless sense of the world than mm -hmm. I do. So she'll say, let's go to Japan. And I was like, okay, you know, et cetera. So it was that. I mean, with India, uh, we, we were invited to India by a, a family that has a program there for artists. And I was, I'm, you know, even when I was a hippie, I, I never wanted to go to mm -hmm. India. I couldn't stand the smell right. of patchouli oil right. and right. You know, all of that. That's, I just thought, I don't, you know, I'm not into the, the religious aspect yeah. of it. And, you know, I, and it just seemed like all I was going to do is go see horrible poverty. Right. Da, 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 da. So I, I didn't want to go, but then April wanted to go, and here was a situation where we would be taken care of. Right. You know? So I said, okay. So there's that. And I don't think I've ever sort of said, 
I have to go here because I think here's mm -hmm. where some interests lie. It's really more like I, I kind of blow in the wind and right. I find it. I, I mean, I went to Japan and I, I didn't see anything there that I could paint. I saw mm -hmm. beautiful things. But I, what I found with Japan was that they're so aestheticized mm -hmm. to begin with that every, they're all about controlling the way they present themselves mm -hmm. to you. I, I didn't have another way of looking at it. Right. You know, there, there were no cracks in mm -hmm. the, I was going to say a point of entry, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so I couldn't do anything with it, and, right. and I didn't. Uh, uh, whereas with India, it was like chaos. You could right, enter it and right, leave it on so right. many different ways that it was stimulating. I remember going to uh, Monet's house in Giverny. Mm -hmm. uh, here's something where he kind of pulls back from the world and creates this garden. Right. And then paints the rest of his life, this garden. So mm -hmm. he's not going anywhere. Right. And I remember... Walking in that garden, of course, they've kind of put it back together so it looked just like it looked when right, exactly. he was. So you could sort of take and frame every little Absolutely. thing and go da-da-da. But I couldn't see what he saw. And mm -hmm. I, I kept looking at it like if he and I were standing easel to easel and, you know, somebody said, okay, go, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't come out with his painting. I, you know, I just, I, I kept squinting my eyes to see if I could break it up or, right. you know, flatten it out right. somehow. To, you know, I, until he showed me. Right. I couldn't see what he saw at all. And, and so that sort of sense of like, like one, you, you don't have to go very far at all mm -hmm. to see this universe, this right. incredible vision of something. Uh, something extraordinary. Right. And, the, and then another experience similar to that was going to this house in southern France that Bonnard lived mm -hmm. in, where he painted all these paintings of uh, Marta in the, in the bathtub or, mm -hmm. you know, sitting in the sunroom and, you know, the, having tea and whatnot. And that house was like no bigger than this stage. You know, the, the feeling of claustrophobia right. and, and stuff in this tiny environment that he kept expanding in mm -hmm. this kind of very interesting way, even though he was dealing with really condensed psychological situation. I mean, it was, you know, his paintings are really troublesome in a lot of ways. But at the same time, you never get a sense that that room is really as small as it mm -hmm. actually as it is. So, yeah. It makes me want to ask you, what's the inside of your head like then these days? <laughs> <laughs> is there one? Well, what is, I mean, it, obviously it, it's narratives that are reflections of the interior. And obviously in many ways it, it's your interior. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious, being that we last had this conversation 11 years ago, how is your interior? <laughs> Has it been redecorated? Um, I mean, do, do you feel... More, I guess I'm interested in the psychological, that the issues and ideas that you're working with have changed, or are they just a steady progression of yourself as you, you know, move through your life? It's a very simple question. It's it a is. 2000. It, it That's is a 2000 simple, question. and there's so many ways of answering it. Anybody that would go to the trouble of externalizing their feelings, thoughts, and visions, right, desperately wants to show somebody else what's what's going on inside. So, right. And, and I, I think as a, a relationship of you know, artist to object and then object to audience, one is a kind of exhalation. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a getting out side of yourself, these things, these visions, feelings. And then the audience, it's like an inhalation. Mm -hmm. it's, so, so the object is, pi is a pivot point for that exchange. And then how you seduce an audience into letting themselves go, mm -hmm. feeling safe enough or uh, sure enough or whatever to take, take you in, these, you know, this thing that you've created right. for them, is kind of where the art is. That's, right. that's how you set up the drama or the, you know, the not telling too much mm -hmm. or you know, allowing the, the audience to complete the... Mm -hmm the story or the, you know, associate with the moment, things like that. It's like how you, how you where you stop, where you... Right. Uh, because I came out of a, an, an, uh, an educational environment that over-intellectualized mm -hmm. 
the creative process that you know, and actually a culture that fed on, on having to know that I approached my process of creativity by trying to work backwards from what I knew mm -hmm. to what I, not even to what I felt, but just to the moment before I started trying to know. Right. You know, because I, I think what dramatic experiences do is they make you think, they make you have an experience and then start rushing to figure out what, the, what it means, why, why did I feel this way, what mm -hmm. did I, you know. So as a, as a strategy to get, to get back to that point where all of a sudden words don't exist, right. that, that where the moment is real, and that's where, for me, the, the deepest part of right. my inside is. Does, I mean, as you obviously, you know, gain incredible mastery over your craft and your technique and your ability to sort of render what you imagine, does your vulnerability or the, the way in which you expose yourself change? Do you feel like you become less vulnerable over time? Or are you still sort of just, you know, turning yourself inside out and saying, hey, what do you think? Uh, no. In, in short answer, no. The things that your craft your mastery of the craft make you not vulnerable to its criticism about your craft. Mm -hmm. I, I want people to say, he's a really good painter. But then I want them to deal with what the art is. And the art is the actual experience, right. the drama and stuff. And, and I have to deal with it first. Mm -hmm. I mean, going back to the Krefeld project, the paintings, the initial paintings I did, I'm working on them for two years. I'm going into my studio, I'm painting these people, I'm following them around each room. They have this horrible relationship. And it's getting worse. You know, mm -hmm. room to room it's getting worse. There's like, there's like missed opportunities, there's like outright scorn, <laughs> you know, right. there's just, I mean, it's just, it's, it's unpleasant. And, I, and I'm thinking, I am a horrible person, and I can't believe that I cannot make this couple go together in a nice way. Right. And, you know, have at least one day mm -hmm. where it's it's it seems okay. I, I mean, there were some days when it was so I was so afraid of going in there and facing that that I I wouldn't. Some days I wouldn't go in and, right. and uh, deal with it. I kept complaining to April about it, and you know. She would try to assure me that I was okay. What do you do when you don't go into the studio? Like if you have a day where you, you, you had sort of planned to and you can't, when you're just up against it? Tennis. Tennis. Tennis helps, but then that's only a couple hours. Right. Uh, then if there's tennis on TV, <laughs> that helps. Right, right. You know, little things like that. Right. But I think but. It's, it is interesting because I think that whether it's tennis or something else, even though you're not painting, you are working on the painting. You're, pro you're, you're dealing with how you're going to get to the next place in it. Yeah. You know, I always think that, that in order to sometimes to make work, you have to make space and you have to wait for it to, to happen sometimes. And sometimes you're not caught up to it or it's not quite caught up to you. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? You just... Tennis. You do tennis. Shopping, you don't write shopping. poetry or something. Some I actually, other you know what? I really used to, I used to paint. You used to paint. Yeah. yeah, very messy. Yeah, I found it. <laughs> it's true. I did. I used. I really did used to paint in my tiny apartment, and it's it's awful because it was what I could do when I couldn't find la verbal language. I would find gestural language for things, mm. and it was definitely a way of solving problems. And even well, now, your your writing is so um, imagistic. First of all, yeah, and and your senses are so short. <laughs> that it, you know, they limited it, vocabulary is really what it is. Yeah, right. No, it's a, it's 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 a cadence. It's a rhythm yeah. that is not unlike a brushstroke. It's it's, you know? it's interesting because there definitely is that sense, and there's also that you build over time a language, and this becomes your language for writing or painting or the series of gestures you use. Yeah. And there's an economy to it. I think at a certain point, so like this. So do you ever think? Right? You know, I really wish I could do like this florid, huge, you know, bravura sentence and. No. 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 That, you know, I sometimes accidentally write long sentences, and people read it and say, that's not a sentence. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh -huh. No, but, you know, I can't write something if I can't see it. Yeah. I have to have uh -huh. a visual in my mind's eye. 
Um, but interestingly, when I painted, I only painted abstractly. I could never paint anything real. Yeah. Um, it was psychological in a sense and problem solving in a sense. One of my, one of my next questions, bringing it back to you, is about narrative and, and clearly narrative and, and dramatic tension has been key to the work all along. I'm curious to hear you talk about that because I do think of you as a, you know, a storyteller and a psychological storyteller. Yeah. I mean, that was a, di a discovery thing for me. One, because I came out of abstract painting, in which I did sort of pretend that this meant something and this meant something. And if I painted the edge a certain way, people would understand what that relationship was. And then they would talk about it in terms that had nothing to do with right. my personal content. I thought, I'm not communicating. But how to construct the, the story, and what I found thank God, early on was that I have an associative mind and, mm -hmm. or a so associational mind or something where well, I don't need much to get started. You know, a chair will do mm -hmm. or, a, or a, a particular kind of gesture which I find sort of mysterious and fascinating simultaneously, somebody turning a certain way or bending a certain way, something that betrays something to me. And, and, but then it's about finding out exactly how to contextualize mm -hmm. that so that my discovery becomes the audience's discovery. And, and then the other thing is that the, uh, you know, and I, so anyway, it's a series of questions once it starts. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's that person and there's that chair. Is that person standing near the chair or walking mm -hmm. away from the chair? Are they turning their back to the chair? Or are they facing the chair? Is that chair important? Right. You know, if it's not that chair, is it a dog? Is it a person standing next to a dog? You know, that. At some point, these the things start to lock themselves mm -hmm. into place, and then you, know, you go with that. And, and the great thing about art, and certainly the great thing about painting, is that you, you can make a chair be more real in a situation than the people. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, can, mm -hmm. you can, through the magic of whatever, you can... Right. You can give an inanimate object consciousness. Mm -hmm. So the whole scene could be expressed and felt through like the coffee cup. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes interesting to me how to, how to sort of manipulate those so I would say, possibilities. A weird question. How do you know how to do that? How do you know how to make the coffee cup have consciousness? Well, I think it happens naturally, yeah. which is to say the coffee cup actually is more interesting to you than the mm -hmm. person is. An amusing story, it's amusing still to me, is the, my most sort of notorious painting, Bad Boy, mm -hmm. which I, I literally only knew that I wanted to paint a bowl of fruit. At a, at a certain point, I had, like, the people in the room. And, and at first, it was like I was imagining a, a, a sort of an after-sex mid-afternoon scene, southern, southwestern, sort of stucco, hot outside, cool inside kind of thing, you know, siesta time, post-coital. And I, I put this man in sort of off to the edge of the painting, and I put the woman next to him, they were sleeping, you know. And I, I'm, I'm like sort of painting, drawing him in there, I can't make him fit. I'm thinking, well, he's, he doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. So I, I erase him. And then her body language was not very active, so I rolled her over. But I kept thinking, you know, there's, it's not just me and her. I'm, it's, mm -hmm. I'm not just the viewer watching this. There's other people in the room. There's some, so then I thought, oh, she's like, you know, she's sitting next to a small baby, mm -hmm. lying next to a small baby, and... and uh, you know, it's nap time, etc. So I put the baby on the pillow next to her. And I couldn't make it fit, so I got rid of the baby. But I thought, well, maybe it's not a baby. Maybe it's like a five-year-old. So I moved the kid over to the edge of the bed, mm -hmm. started poking his fingers through the slatted blinds, you know, looking out. Didn't work. And eventually, you know, got him sta 11 years right, old, exactly. standing up, you know, etc., etc. And then it, it worked, but... It was intuiting that this is, I, I don't want to have it be a, a direct contact mm -hmm. viewer to, to subject matter. Mm -hmm. 
one-on-one. -on -one. I need an intermediary. And I didn't, that wasn't articulated except through trying to find a figure that also existed in this same right. room. So that's part of the drama thing. Yeah. It's like, you, you know, you, you have to figure out where you want your audience to be mm -hmm. when you show them what you're going to show them, you know. And, and if, you, if you do a, a painting of an individual staring out, well, then you're, it's direct contact, you and that person. You turn the person, uh, avert the gaze. You create a voyeuristic situation in which the audience is a little more comfortable about peering in with mm -hmm. impunity. Although, depending, you know, you could turn it just a little bit that makes it feel like they're going to turn back and get you. But you put two people in, in a that situation and have them interacting in an intense moment, well, now, now the viewer has a kind of distance where they can feel comfortable in their, in their voyeuristic investigation. And, and it kind of expands out from them. And then you can also play around with, like, putting stuff between you and, and them. You can make it easier or harder for the viewer right. to find Absolutely. their way into that moment. Right. You know? You know, I always think of your work as being incredibly cinematic. And, I, and as you're talking, I mean, it sounds in many ways very much like the way a director mm. begins to think of a scene. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the influence of cinema, both in terms of narrative, but also in terms of things like lighting and just the way you view images. Yeah. I mean, I've been w way influenced by, uh, by cinema, by TV, certainly mm -hmm. by photography. They all... Um, offer up ways of reinvigorating painting mm -hmm. now. You have to also include theater right, as absolutely. part of that in the sense that you pretty much always see the whole scene. Mm -hmm. The figures are sort of life-size. Right. You know, so it has that kind of theatrical reality to it, that sort of box form. Right. Are there specific filmmakers and, and playwrights and, and directors that you particularly are moved by? Yeah. Well, I think I was influenced by Mike Nichols, mm -hmm. um, you know, The Graduate and, and Carnal Knowledge and Robert Altman mm -hmm. and, and some of his, you know, just offbeat, almost surrealist humor the, to, to his uh, narratives and, and also the sort of banality of his mm -hmm. environments. And certainly a lot of playwrights that, you know, you know, that have that kind of psychological mm -hmm. uh, drama of... A, it's know, very Pinterest. I was going to say exactly, Pinter yeah. and, you know, Albie's yeah. um, Virginia Woolf, I for do. sure. <laughs> and, um, but also people like Marsha Norman yeah. and stuff as sure. well. And the uh, thing is, and I, I mean, you, your work deals with this as well, which is that generationally, when, when we were coming up, that the suburbs was... A taboo. Mm -hmm. it, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't seen as a legitimate genre for art. Right. It was totally disregarded. It was a cliche already, in some in so many ways, but an unexplored cliche. I was so many of our generation yeah. came from, and you're younger yeah. than I am, but, but I think anyway, the they came from the suburbs. Particularly weirdly intimate, in the sense that things happened in these houses, and the difference between one's private self and public self and what could happen in the sort of mid-range isolation that people experienced in the suburbs. Well, well also, the, the suburbs is inherently imagistic. Mm -hmm. It's utopian. Mm -hmm. So it's all about, you know, uh, a, a kind of calm serenity, a kind of taking care of the lawns, the, the fences, the, you know, the neighborliness, the, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's idealistic that way. And a lot of it is determined on people looking at a magazine and saying, I want that kitchen, mm -hmm. you know, I want that picket fence, I want this, this, this you know, kind of thing. And, and, it, and also they, they don't want to betray the things that are destroying that right. utopian vision, the, the, the alcoholism, the incest, the, you know, whatever, <laughs> the child of, all, the, right. all of the, you know, the yeah. fun stuff. right. So, <laughs> so there's that what's so thing. I mean, that's in what you're suburbs. saying, inside, outside. Yeah. Stuff. But also in the suburbs, there's something, you know, in the city where we are used to seeing 
so many people moving through their daily lives, and that is one kind of experience. But in the suburbs, there's something about the fact that if you're looking out your kitchen window and you see the neighbor leave their house, everything is thrown into relief. And each motion seems so much larger and so much more notable. So if you see two children playing outside, there is that surprise of seeing the way people occupy their space and move through their space, because each person is so set off against the background of that, you know, Hmm. idealistic kind of fantasy life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a, gr- it's a great place. Yeah, uh, they, yeah, love the suburbs. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's still uh, not fully plumbed either. No. Really. I'm curious to hear a little bit about your feelings about public art, the 9-11 piece that you made, and the other being, I guess, the Arthur Ashe piece. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have thoughts about the public art versus sort of what I think of as the more private art or art that is not offered up to people in that way. Mm-hmm. The Arthur Ashe sculpture you know, turned out to be an incredibly positive. The, the, the initial uh, resistance to it was eclipsed fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, uh, I mean, first of all, I was so surprised that they accepted my ideas for doing this sculpture because I, I probably haven't you've never seen it but I, I did this large uh, male uh, nude male uh, figure uh, in the in a uh, gesture of um, uh, the serve in tennis so which is a an incredibly heroic uh, gesture to begin with it's you know, it's one arm is lifted, tossing the ball. The other is reaching back right. to begin the swing up, you know, et cetera. So there's a lot of nice metaphors about it. And it, it's something that fits in very comfortably, I think, historically with, you know, like the discus thrower, the javelin mm-hmm. thrower, mm-hmm. you know, the other, the wrestlers, mm-hmm. the, you know, et cetera, the, the, the uh, athletic, classical image of physicality and heroism and, you know, et cetera, the sensuous body and heroic form, you know. And, um, but, you know, tennis is like, you know, a very conservative group of people. And, you know, the fact that they would have allowed this Mm -hmm. blew my mind. But they bought my spiel. And uh, and thanks God uh, to uh, Jeannie Ash, Arthur uh-huh. Ash's widow, because she she's an artist as well, a photographer, and and she got behind it and mm-hmm. pushed it through. And so that you know there was an initial response from the people coming to the tennis center. Of, what, what is this naked person doing? Right. And, you know, et cetera. But it. Changed, mm-hmm. and uh, it it uh, it took a few voices that they trusted. Um, there was there was a very funny thing where, you know, the TV camera would pan the grounds during the U.S. Open, and it would kind of go along, and then it would sort of go up and over my <laughs> sculpture, <laughs> and then uh, McEnroe, who's a, a friend of mine and a, and an art lover and stuff. He really got behind it and, and kept saying, you know, you have to shoot this thing. Right. You, you know, you have to do an interview with me standing in front of it. You have to, whatever it was, and they eventually began to look at it, and they figured out angles where they could <laughs> show it where the genitalia wasn't, right. you know, which, which I was very discreet about the genitalia anyway. It's, it's really more of a, a blur than anything else. But anyway, so that was a positive right. thing, and... and um, you know, and then of course the 9/11 thing was horrendous and and really disappointing. And uh, I have to say, I mean, when I was watching the disaster unfold, one of the thoughts that went through my head was, "I'm I'm needed." Mm-hmm. You know, I as an artist, I'm needed now, and. If, if there was ever a reason to try to make something and put it into the public in some way, this, this was it. Every artist has to respond to this thing. Mm-hmm. This, was, you know, this was a life-changing event. And we have to deal, we have to be there to, to sort of give it form, give it voice, mm-hmm. give it some way of understanding this terrible thing that happened. So 
I started that day trying to figure out a way of expressing something about it. You know, and every medium is different, too. I mean, f photography and video were there right away. Right, they, sure. they nailed it, it, what it looked like, you know, the, the hugely dramatic images and stuff mm -hmm. like that. You know, the, I would imagine the 9-11 opera is probably going to take a lot longer mm -hmm. to figure out how to do right. than that. But, you know, now we're starting to see novels come mm -hmm. out with, with mm -hmm. that as a background of right. some kind. Right. There's you know, movies being made and stuff. So, you know, everybody's responding to, to it. It just takes time. And anyway, I, I, I came on this uh, image, this form, which was a, of a, uh, a tumbling woman. I mean, I, you know, clearly the, the falling people were the most unforgettable, mm -hmm. most horrifically mm -hmm. unforgettable, most sort of, you know, jarring in terms of your imagination. Like, what... Possess. How bad right. was it right. that this was the way they chose? Mm -hmm. One death over another. And, uh, and then there was immediately the taboo of showing it. Mm -hmm. The weird thing is, is that they're the only bodies mm -hmm. that we saw. And it was amazing how fast that experience, 3,000 people dead, and all we're talking about is the buildings. Right. You know, all we're talking about is the architecture. All we're talking about is trying to memorialize this horrific thing by keeping the exact footprints, as though that has anything to do with what actually the, tragically occurred. And so when I um, found this sort of image of, and I say found in my own imagination, this image of a, not so much a falling uh, uh, thing as a tumbling one, a kind of a lateral movement. Mm -hmm. Felt like it was expressing not just the, the falling bodies, but it was expressing myself and even America in a state of, mm -hmm. of disequilibrium. And that it, so it seemed right to, to present it that way. I didn't think a whole lot past that uh, in terms of showing it and the reception of it. I, I'd asked my uh, dealer, Mary Boone, if she could find a place for it. And I thought that uh, the first anniversary was appropriate mm -hmm. to do that. Because I actually thought that there'd be a lot of people expressing right. their feelings and memories and da-da-da on that day. And, and so it was appropriate to do that. And she found a place for it in Rockefeller Center in this concourse area, which is a very publicly traveled I actually had two choices. I could put it there or I could have put it in its own room. And I chose to put it in the most public mm -hmm. place as opposed to one that isolated it. Mistake number one. I un completely underestimated the, uh, the intensity of the shock of seeing it. Mm -hmm. I guess partly because I had lived with it for a year making it that, that, that initial impact of seeing this vulnerability had kind of left me. So I underestimated when people came on it unexpecting and saw it, that, uh, that they would be so upset by it. But I was also sure that, that the, the, the longer it stayed there, mm -hmm. the more we would understand it. That, that the whole thing of memorialization, a uh, monumentalization of, of these kind of tragedies is you kind of like hang with it till you realize you're still here. Mm -hmm. that, that was then, that happened there, and it's fixed in time and place. And you're, you, you survived it, and so you can go on with your life. That that's sort of a way that the thing worked. And pe people were just so not ready to, yeah. to see that in, in that in unexpected way. It was surreal, too, because on the day of the... Uh, Anniversary. I was walking from my uh, apartment to my studio through mm -hmm. Washington Square Park and into Soho. You know, they're reading the names mm -hmm. off. And there, there were people sitting on park benches with their radios, and mm -hmm. these names are wafting out. And walk by a pizza parlor, and these names are wafting out. And I went into my bank, and the names are wafting out. And I walked down the street, and you could hear 
the dead everywhere. They were, it was like coming out of the mm -hmm. drains and so you could feel the, this sort of energy. So it was like the tragedy was, the sit, was in mm -hmm. the city, it was the city itself. So the idea that I, I had to make a sculpture that went into an art context didn't seemed wrong to me. That, that it should, you know, that I, that was part of the crit critique was, you know, well, if you had put it in a gallery, nobody would have said anything. Right. I just but wondered it, if it was secretly an uptown, downtown problem. Yeah, that <laughs> No, but seriously, you know, if it had been in Washington Square Park, if it would have had a different response, that, that somehow, even on the, the day of, you know, the event itself, there was such a split between people who lived downtown, who really did physically experience it, and people who lived uptown who, I mean, obviously they, it was huge, but life in the immediate moments didn't change. You know, downtown we had no newspapers for a week, which was sort of, yeah. sh that had never happened. You couldn't get, a, you know, in or out. I mean, I wonder if downtown it was, for like, it was more ready for more it. Ready yeah. for it. I mean, I'm only thinking about that now, but it was well, very you know, there's interesting. A, there's a, there is this hierarchy to, to death, to tragedy, where and, I mean, maybe it's part of the mourning process or whatnot, where those closest to the event have the most honor right. in relationship to it. They have the most honor, the most privilege. They're, they're in, the, you know, in that place. So you, know, you, you lose a wife or a husband right. or a child or a parent. or so, you know, You're in the inner right. circle, the tight one. So in this case, it was like, you know, there was the, the families who suffered and, and, and died, and then there were the, the, the firemen and police, and that was, you know, the second tier. Mm -hmm. And then there were the people downtown. Right. So but below 14th Street, they could shut anybody up who mm -hmm. was talking about it by going, well, you know, I live down on Canal Street. So. Then there was uptown. There, right. If you were in Manhattan... Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. You had to, yeah, yeah. I was out on Long Island, so right. shit, I, I mean, I had no room to talk except for people who lived in, like, Ohio. Right. But, you and, know, it's, it's exactly true. They talk about exactly those circles in terms of trauma, yeah. that the way, the depth at which people are traumatized is also directly related to their proximity to an event. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, the entire country was traumatized, but in, in you know, radiating circles. Right. I guess we have to, on that lovely note, we have to probably wind up... Okay. Well, thank you, guys. You just heard painter Eric Fischel, interviewed by novelist and short story writer A.M. Holmes, in front of a live audience at the New York Academy of Art. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.